Hi, this is Tom Compton. You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events. Ready, set, let the sparks fly. In today's WHTT Speaks Out, our topic is entitled U.S. Treasury Bonds, The Godfather of All Bubbles. Is this going to happen? This is by Chuck Carlson. So I'd like to read a summary. We're going to be discussing his upcoming article here, and this will be just an introduction. If you're interested, we would urge you to go and read the full article and study it, because this is a significant event. I think one of the things that may wake up people in the United States to the problems we have, our war-based economy, is some kind of financial event. And so with that brief introduction, I'd like to read this summary here. The most dangerous man-made bubble of all time may be the 30-year-old bull market in the U.S. Treasury bonds, notes, and bills. And we're going to call this U.S. debt hereafter. U.S. debt has purposely manipulated upward to become a crap game on Wall Street. Once the most conservative and traditional storehouse of values, the price of U.S. debt is now so exaggerated the fluctuations so violent and the interest paid on it so low as to make it a trader's wild ride. It is a speculative delight, usually with other people's monies. As such, U.S. debt is a yawning sinkhole for American investors who own it, but who do not know it exists. Most pension plans and IRAs are professionally managed that owners are unaware they are dependent on U.S. debt and have one foot in the sinkhole. The price of U.S. debt instruments has been manipulated generally upward for some 30 years and its interest rate leveraged downward proportionally. So I want to talk about some of these high points here. How do we finance our wars? What is the mechanism for that? What is actually a bond? And what's likely to cause a bubble? Is there some mechanism that we can expect to see this godfather bubble that Chuck is talking about? Welcome, Chuck. Thank you, Tom. We don't talk directly about financial things very often, but we probably should do it more when we happen to know a little bit about it, and we just happen to notice this and know a little about it, and and I have a little bit of history in in this kind of thing, though I was never a bond trader or anything like that. I went to school and was aware of how, how the leverage works and and how the Federal Reserve actually does participate in the United States government bond market. First of all, the subject of what all this money is going for and how much it is. We're talking here about the federal debt now being well in excess of $18 trillion, and that's trillions. And trillion was a number, I don't know if we even knew that number. I don't know if that number existed 50 years ago or 100 years ago. It certainly wasn't something that we ever thought we would see in our country's finances. It's a number beyond counting. It's beyond imagination. You can't count there. You can devote your life to counting to a trillion. You'd never get there. So we're talking about enormous exaggeration of the debt. In just the last 10 years, it's gone up from approximately $8 trillion to $16 trillion. So it's approximately doubled. Back in 1982, there was a big campaign 
to prevent Congress from approving an increase in the debt limit to $1 trillion. That was $1 trillion. So since 1982, it's gone from $1 trillion, which it took 210 years of our, of our government operating to get to $1 trillion, and people were horrified by a trillion. There was actually a pretty big campaign to stop no trillion dollar national debt campaign. It didn't work because Congress went ahead and approved it. It was just another number to them. But from there, it's escalated. And in our last three or four wars, however you want to count, Iraq, Iraq, Afghanistan, and then all the auxiliaries that go with it, the semi-wars and the participations and so on, this has consumed another $8 trillion. These little brush fire wars that we've had in the Middle East have been very expensive, more expensive than Vietnam or more expensive than World War II. Uh, so in terms of the cost. So obviously this means something, and what it really means is the value of money is going down very, very fast to where a warplane costs uh, how many million do they, do they now cost? How many billion do they cost? The weapons, the cost of the military, the soldiers, the men in the field, everything has escalated, and of course we know that the value of our money has gone down, and it has to do with the printing of all this new money. So this is really what we're talking about here, is we're making an observation about how much new money has been printed and put into the market. And in this scenario of how the government bonds ever got to $18 trillion, we've contended here that this could never have happened except for a massive manipulation that sort of fooled investors into pouring their money into it. And the Federal Reserve Bank, for instance, has a record of doing this. We quote the Federal Reserve Bank report in here. And if you go and read that Federal Reserve Bank report, it tells you that the Federal Reserve Bank owns $1.7 trillion worth of mortgage-backed securities. Does anybody remember what a mortgage-backed security is and when we first heard about that? 2008. Right. And what was it? It was all the, the bad mortgages that went south. It was all the contrived bad mortgages put into vehicles that the banks invented in order to get money to pour into them. And when the values of the mortgages dropped, people didn't pay the mortgages, the banks ended up stuck with them. Now, how do you think those $1.7 trillion worth of mortgages got into the uh, Federal Reserve Bank? And the answer is the Federal Reserve Bank has went out and bought them bailed out the banks and bought them from the banks. Now, obviously, anybody hearing this would, if they don't know, would ask where do they get all this money to do this. And the truth is that the Federal Reserve Bank doesn't need anything but a building and the payroll. They don't need money for cash items because back in 1913, the United States Congress voted to approve the Federal Reserve Act and that Federal Reserve Act gave this new bank a franchise, and that franchise included the right to issue checks and to carry balances. And so by fiat, the Federal Reserve Bank is allowed to write checks even though they don't have deposits. And so the way the Federal Reserve Bank has gotten around this is that they have bought bonds from the United States Treasury with money they print, 
and then they have held these bonds, and then oftentimes they sell them if there's someone to sell them to. But what you have, of course, is when the banks got in trouble, the Federal Reserve Bank went ahead and loaned money to the banks that they printed, and they then booked these mortgage investment securities by various mechanism. They took them in and acquired ownership of them and relieved the banks of this $1.7 trillion worth of bad debt. Yes. I might point out to our listeners, I assume many of our listeners know that the Federal Reserve is not a government banking operation, that it is a private banking cartel. It is privately owned and privately held. Many Americans are not aware of this, that this whole scheme, that it is not a government operation, just like Federal Express is not a government operation. Okay, very good. Very true. There are central banks in other countries. England has one. It operates kind of the same way. It seems to be uh, more hidden. Other countries have created central banks. Many countries around the world have copied this technique because, of course, it allows for unlimited printing of money. And that allows governments to do about what they want to. As we pointed out, a lot of it's been used to finance the wars in the Middle East that we've done recently. And, of course, it was also done in 1917 to finance World War I. It's just that the scale was so much smaller then. The amount of billions that was actually used to finance World War I was a relatively small number of billions of dollars. Maybe it was $30 billion or something. I'm not sure I know uh, at the present moment. So now what we have is this long process of the U.S. Treasury printing up government bonds, and then somebody has to buy these government bonds, and so then the Federal Reserve System, our central bank, acts as a broker in this case, and they essentially guarantee that these bonds will be sold, in effect, to investors. And the way they do that is they sell all they can, and they make a big show of of the offering being highly under demand, and then, of course, they buy any excess bonds that no one else wants. As a result of that, most of these bond auctions are a big success. And as we point out in the paper, the Federal Reserve has simply been buying about, it comes in about 7 or 8% of all the bonds sold, the Federal Reserve ends up buying themselves and keeping. And that's the manipulation that makes the market work. It's their ability to come up with unlimited cash to buy, uh, or unlimited checks, I should say, to buy the excess bonds in a market to make every single offering that the Federal Reserve ever makes a resounding success. And there's always an announcement in the newspaper, uh, oversubscribed by 50%, because everybody knows this is going to happen, so the banks all hurry in and buy the maximum number they can and sell them to their customers. And this Chuck, can I ask a question on that? Yes. So if I understand it correctly, if they had an auction and they couldn't sell the bonds, then the interest rate would have to go up until the bonds would be sold. And because the, the Fed is buying them at the face value, the interest rate doesn't have to go up. Is that is that a good understanding? That's right. The Federal Reserve makes sure the bond versus rate of return, uh, the rate of return in a bond is called the yield. 
and the price of the bond and the yield of the bond are like a teeter-totter. On one end is the price of the bond and the other end is the rate of return. When one goes up, the other goes down. So if the interest rate has to go up because the, the auction is not a success and banks will and banks and, and mutual funds will only pay, uh, they won't pay that much, then that means that the interest rate is going up and the price of the bond is going down. Basically, what happens, uh, Craig, is that the $1,000 bond is bought for $990. And when you add the extra $10 into the return that you're going to get back in, say, 10 years, let's say it's a 10-year bond, then you can figure out how much that, well, that's worth $1 a year. So uh, your, interest, your interest that was, say it was 2% before, or $20 a year, it's now $21 a year, because at the end of the period when the bond matures, you're going to get back an extra 10 bucks. Figure that in, one buck a year, or you can amortize it to the penny if you want to. And we use little, uh, a little um, a program to figure these things out. So yes, if the Federal Reserve did not prop up the price in the auction when these bonds were being sold, and the uh, bids were, weren't enough bids, the bonds would go down. And actually the way they bid the bonds is people put in their bids and actually, or organizations, I should say banks, put in their bids at various prices. And sometimes they'll put in for way more than they want, but they put in some of them real low and some of them a little higher and so on. And then the Fed just manages all this and makes sure that the auction goes off at a, at a nice clean price, very close to what the government printed them at. So if, if the bond is, let's say, has a coupon of one and seven-eighths and it's a 10-year bond, then they might uh, sell that bond at $990 and it would come out to be a 2% yield to maturity. So we try to explain this in our paper, how this works, and we even give you a little calculator that uh, is furnished uh, conveniently by a mutual fund company. You can plug in the numbers any price that you want and figure out what the yield of a bond is to maturity. And uh, so uh, propping it up in the primary, it's called the primary market. This is where the bonds are issued. But guys, the Federal Reserve doesn't stop there. The Federal Reserve has a program called their open market operation. The open market operation doesn't just operate on auction day once a month when the Treasury is selling bonds, it operates all the time. Every day the markets are open. And the open market operations of the Federal Reserve essentially go in and buy bonds in the open market. So they can kind of ease the market up just a little bit if they want. And this is what has kept the market going up for the last 30 years. The Federal Reserve has consistently found ways to jawbone the market up, and then, when necessary, to back it up with their phony money purchases so that uh, they own a few more bonds, a few more million today, and the price of the bond goes up. Let's say it goes up $10 on a $1,000 bond. That's uh, one one-hundredth or 1%, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they basically put the market up 1%. Now, here's what happens with your mutual fund companies who have these nice mutual funds. We gave an example of one operated by the firm of J.P. Morgan Chase. Have you ever heard of J.P. Morgan Bank? 
How about the Chase Manhattan Bank? Ever heard of that? Well, J.P. Morgan Chase is a merger of the two. And if you go back and look in the old, form, old books that went, go back and trace who started the Federal Reserve Bank, if my memory serves me correctly, both J.P. Morgan and the Chase Bank were originally founding members that owned stock in the Federal Reserve Bank when it was formed in 1913. But in any case, the mutual funds managed by Morgan Chase, there are over 100 mutual funds that they manage for people like you and I. They're full of our IRAs, they're full of our pension plans, they're full of our uh, voluntary investments that we might be able to make and we buy mutual fund shares. And they have 25 separate funds. Each one runs in the billions, except I saw a couple that didn't quite make a billion, but some were well over a billion. I think there was one that was 12 billion. But anyway, each one of these funds essentially buys government bonds. That's basically what's in their portfolio. They may have mixtures in there, and they all have funny names, and they all have descript some are descriptive names like ultra-conservative bond fund. And the one that I used as my example is the J.P. Morgan Chase government bond fund, and that has only government bonds in it. And those bonds average about a 15 years of maturity before they mature on an average, which means there's probably some, there is some, they tell you, some 30-year bonds, 20s, 10s, on down to 5s and 2s and 1s and so on. So they have these bonds, and what they do when they describe their performance for your mutual fund, your, your shares that you buy in Morgan Chase government bond fund, they show the appreciation in addition to the interest. Now, on each bond in the portfolio, they accumulate the rise in prices that occurred since the last auction of the Federal Reserve Bank, let's say. So if the Federal Reserve and others, if they contrive to lift, let's say they lift in one day, last week, the government bonds went up 1.5%, or they went down 1.5%, I should say. But suppose in one month, the average portfolio goes up 1% in the marketplace. What Morgan Chase does is they say, aha, they grab that, they take that number, and they add it on to the interest rate that's being earned by the bond fund, which averages 1.67%. It's not very much. But they add on 1% that they found in appreciation this month, or let's say it's in this quarter, and let's say they did that for each of the four quarters. That adds up to 4%. So what they do at the end of the year is they send out a statement. They say, your fund has earned 5.67%. We had 4% of appreciation and 1.67% uh, of real interest. And never mind all of the fees and everything that they charge. We'll ignore those. But the appreciation is added on even though it's not money in the genes. It's a paper appreciation that occurred in the portfolio. If the portfolio goes down the next month or the next quarter, they then have to reduce that. But because of this upward movement that the Federal Reserve is constantly manipulating the government bond market upward, 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 J.P. Morgan Chase can show on that government bond fund that they earned an amazing 4.45% over the last 10 years per year. Chuck, isn't there also a tax ramification where you don't have to pay income tax on bonds 
that, that's, on that's on municipal bonds, but you have to pay income tax on government bonds. On municipal bonds, you don't. And you wouldn't pay them on appreciation that has not been accrued. You might get a statement that says your bond fund went up an extra 1% this quarter, or it's earning 4%, let's say, annualized. But unless the fund actually sells the bonds out of the fund, then the customer does not have to pay taxes on that capital gain. If J.P. Morgan Chase turns over that bond, sells it in the marketplace, aha, it's up, I'm going to sell it quick before it goes down, they grab the cash, then the owner has to pay taxes, of course, on that capital gain. However, the, the flip side of this, if you can conceive of this for a moment, is in the nature, and this is why we go to a lot of trouble explaining how a bond works, in the nature of a bond, it has an absolute fixed return at resurrection day, at time of maturity, be it 15 years, and that bond started out at $1,000 face value, it will say $1,000 face value on it, and when you turn it in, you'll get 1000 and not one penny more. And so if in the meantime, the bond appreciated 10% over the course of five years, and then it gradually turns around and eases on down and goes back down to the par value, which is called par value, which means the face value. It goes down to where it's actually going to be liquidated, which you're going to get back, what the mutual fund company gets back. So the appreciation is a phantom because it goes away. You don't get it. It, it vaporizes as the bond goes to maturity unless J.P. Morgan Chase's trader down in the bond department quickly sells it and cashes in and then issues the uh, statement to the customers uh, that they have uh, appreciation and they'll have to pay capital gains on it. Now, you might ask, well, what happens if J.P. Morgan Chase sells the bond or they sell all these bonds that are appreciated? What then takes place? Well, J.P. Morgan's now got a vault full of cash, and cash does not return anything. You don't get even a tenth of a percent on your cash. So what does Morgan Chase do? They have to run out in the bond market and buy something else. And since their perspective says this is, can only be a government bond, they got to buy another government bond. Maybe they'll buy one that is 30 years long and has a higher return, or I don't know what they'll do. How they'll t attempt to paint the picture that they're actually continuing to do a good job for their customers because what they've really done is got him a tax liability and uh, took a short-term capital gain on, on government bonds. But since all government bonds move together in some sort of a pattern, the ones he goes to buy back are going to cost him proportionately more or proportionately the same as the ones he sells. It's just he's going to have a new face in the bag. And so what's happened is Wall Street has generated thousands of little Harvard graduate MBAs who manage money and who try to outsmart the bond market by buying and selling and make it look like they're continuing to make more money than the 1.67% that the market is really paying them. So the, the entire bond mutual fund program is in some degree and, and in some ways is a scam. It has elements of scam all throughout it wherever government bonds are involved.
Chuck, let's talk about in 2013, you had a decline in the bond prices. And let's talk a little bit about that, what caused that, and then what would be something that could actually trick this balloon, if you will. Uh, what would be a mechanism that could cause this whole house of cards to fall? Okay, I'll answer the last question first because it's really easy. If you have big sellers in the market and they overwhelm the market and it becomes known that, there's, that there are big sellers in the market, uh, this spreads throughout Wall Street like wildfire. And also, we now know that foreign governments own $6 trillion worth of our bonds. That's two and a half times as much as the Federal Reserve owns. Both Japan and China own well over a trillion, 100 million each. I think Japan's had a, a, a trillion, too. Those are enormous numbers. These people are not foolish. And if selling starts in the bond market, then that will trigger more selling. And this is exactly what happened in 2013. What started it was your Federal Reserve chairman named Janet Yellen. She and her various other vice presidents of the eight Federal Reserve districts, they are, they're the presidents of these other banks. They're essentially publicists for the system. And Janet Yellen came out and said, because uh, the economy is recovering so marvelously, we are going to have to raise interest rates. We can no longer give the banks money at one-tenth of one percent, which we've been doing, and we can no longer allow the interest rates to be this low because it will cause inflation. So the mere mention of the possibility that the Federal Reserve was going to themselves force up the interest rates when what they have been doing all along is forcing down the interest rates. Keep in mind what we've been talking about is whenever the Federal Reserve buys bonds, they force up the price of the bond and cause the interest rate to go down. Now the same Federal Reserve has come out and said, we're going to have to force the interest rate up, which will make the price of the bond go down. The bond market responded very violently, and during the course of 2013, the bond market for treasury bonds, depending on the maturity, fell from 6% to 20-some%. One bond that I looked at, well, five-year notes went down, oh my gosh, they went down about 7% of five-year notes. 30-year bonds went way down. It was like a big speculative drama. And the Federal Reserve had to turn around and for the last six months, of course, they've been very busy trying to prop up a government bond market again uh, by coming out and saying, maybe we were wrong, maybe we were premature. We guess we are not going to be too quick to raise interest rates. So you have this jawboning, and the Federal Reserve is on both sides of it. One side is saying, we have to have higher interest rates to prevent inflation, and the other side is subtly working in the market, trying to force interest rates down so that they can force bond prices up. And uh, that keeps the vigorous interest in buying the new bonds, even at the lower interest rate returns. And the banks and institutions have continued to buy the bonds. And the same bond that sells to yield 2.67% today, a 10-year bond, about three years ago, the same bond was selling to yield 4%. So the difference in the price of that bond in the marketplace is, is, is real significant. Does that 
get to the answer? Yeah, I think that helps, yes. But it doesn't it doesn't make sense, of course. Yes. I mean, what is this Federal Reserve? Which side are they on? What is it they're trying to do? Well, what they're trying to do is they're trying to facilitate a constant huge flow of easy money into the marketplace. That is really what their purpose is. And it goes through their friends in the banks. And I mentioned that J.P. Morgan Chase, I think both of those original banks were original Federal Reserve members. I'd have to run and look it up. So you actually have the Federal Reserve created by a bunch of banks like J.P. Morgan and Chase Manhattan Bank getting together and actually creating the Federal Reserve Bank. And I would guess they own stock because it they is did. held by the stock. Yep, they were stock like a private company. They, they have mm-hmm. stock and it's held privately by yep. other banks. It is. It's held, their stock is, as, as far as anybody knows, it was originally private and it's still held private and nobody knows the difference. This is why some of these congressmen have been calling for an audit. They, they think maybe we should know, have a right to know who owns the Federal Reserve Bank. It's kind of like the Fox garden of chicken house to me is where the bottom line. Uh, it's not a fox. It's a giant wolf or a 2,000 pound grizzly or something like that. <laughs> but you're on track. So we're in a precarious position here. It looks like the Fed has actually worked themselves into a pretty untenable position or un, unsustainable, actually. Yes, it, they, they, they've, they've managed to blow it up to the point where it's unsustainable. And that's why we're doing this program, because we operate in common sense here, and it doesn't always work, but our common sense tells us this can't go on. And other financial writers that I've watched from time to time have for the last 10 years been saying this is a gigantic bubble. But the problem is they're shouted down in the marketplace. It's quite possible that government bonds can go up to make uh, make a new high next month and then go on up next year and and, and keep on going up, and we would have a hard time convincing anybody that this is going to happen if, if it doesn't happen pretty promptly. So this is the dilemma of when you make a prognostication. Uh, if it doesn't work out right away, uh, then everybody has to be awful patient, and you're going to have to revive your old paper back in, in a year or two when it actually happens. However, because of the massive overextension that's going on, and because there are other bubbles in the economy as well, like a very inflated stock market and other such things, uh, it seems, and because you have recession conditions going on in places like Europe and other spots, it seems to me as though this bubble could be burst by any one of three different groups. And the three that I have in mind are, number one, China. It owns all these bonds, and it is making a move to get out from under the United States dollar system. The trading that goes on between the United States and and China is all defined in dollars. China doesn't like that. They think they get cheated in the conversion markets. So they'd like to settle in in their currency because they're the ones who are accumulating the currency. So they've actually come out and started a central banking system of their own. And uh, that's mentioned in the paper. And it already has some 50 member nations who have signed up and said, count us in, we want to be in on this. So we have one possibility being China. Japan is a poor, a lesser possibility because Japan is so close to the United States and so much under United States influence 
China is much more independent right now than Japan. But then there's this huge mutual fund block that owns estimated $5 trillion, I guess, is, is about as close as you can get, four times as much as China or Japan owns. If these dozens of blue-suited guys who manage these funds suddenly begin to have coffee and drinks together and start talking about it looks like the market is on its way down, what are we going to do? You could have a massive barrage of selling of bonds. And one thing we've noticed in the bond market is it's become very volatile. It's not the old quiet little thing that inched along and nobody even talked about it except every once a month. Financial analysts now talk about the bond market every day. So it's become very volatile. So the sellers, the potential sellers, are other countries that have our bonds, total $5 trillion worth. And uh, that means a lot of countries have half a trillion. Russia had $460 billion, almost half a trillion themselves. And Russia has been selling. And they've been selling because they need the money. We, the United States put sanctions on them. So uh, we put sanctions on somebody that owns half a trillion dollars worth of our bonds. So Russia uh, just said, well, boys, we guess we'll sell. So they did. So they've sold half, and they'll no doubt sell the rest. So the U.S. is making enemies. Some of them have our securities. The Arab countries, like Saudi Arabia, and those have a lot of dollars. So you have ample sellers. You have enormous sellers out there, potentially, who could pierce the bubble and cause the bond bubble to break. And when I say break, I don't mean it has to go down by 75%, where your $1,000 bond is only worth 200 or 400 To have a big impact, the bond market only has to go down 5 or 10%. Because take the Social Security Fund. It's almost entirely invested in United States government bonds. And uh, if those bonds were to be known to have lost even 10% of their value, the Social Security funds would, they're already bankrupt. Uh, they're already, you know, underfunded, unfunded. But many, many pension plans, profit sharing plans are dependent on these government bonds. So those are your potential sellers. So our caution to people is if you have these things in your 401k, well, maybe you should think about talking to the money manager and ask him what else he has for sale. All right. Well, thank you so much, Chuck. Any other questions? Chuck, I was going to ask you the, the mechanism. How would China unload the bonds? What if they unload the bonds? What do they What do they get for them? They get dollars, or they get yes, they would, rolls, they, or what? They would get dollars, and then they would take those dollars and dump them because our dollar is very high right now, and they would buy yen with them. And of course, it would tend to put up the price of the yen because they would be essentially taking their big fat dollars and putting it in a little skinny yen and bidding up the yen in the market. And okay. China has been talking about selling bonds to finance some of their pro internal problems. So they could even hold the U.S. bonds and just issue oodles and oodles of their own bonds if they wanted to and hold them to maturity. But I don't know the duration and length of the bonds that China holds, but they could go directly into the bond traders like Goldman Sachs and say, I've got a billion, I've got 10 billion, I've got 100 billion. And Goldman Sachs would go out and try to sell them. Okay. Problem is, it would create fervor in the market. It appears that China has been selling, by the way. I found a website that lists what the holdings of China were, and they have steadily gone down every month during 2014 
by just a little bit, very, very slow decline, and then on into January, February, they were down also. So their holdings have been going down, and that's in, in spite of appreciation in the value of these holdings. So it's possible that China is already selling. China could alleviate this problem of hammering the market. I mean, if China came in and exposed themselves as a big-time seller, the market's done. That is it. Because every mutual fund manager that has a bond fund is going to pick up the phone and call Goldman Sachs or whoever they trade with, their own trading department or whoever. Mm -hmm. Just the idea of China selling would terrify the mutual fund investors who hold these things. Mm -hmm. When you talked about 1982, it went from $1 trillion and it's like, oh, no, we've got to stop it there. And now we're up to $18 trillion. Right. You know, Why couldn't it go to... Uh, 36 trillion or 100 trillion or a yeah. trillion. Yeah, why not? What, what's to keep this missile to keep going? As long as everybody in the Federal Reserve is willing to buy the excess and keep the bond market stable, what's to stop this thing? Well, I think they have to more than keep it stable. I think they have to keep the interest rates actually going down, and, and that means they have to keep the price of the bonds going up. And so the interest rate is already so low that it's ridiculous. If uh, Maybe we should have started this program out by talking about what is the value of a government bond. But if, if you have a 10-year instrument that pays you only 1.67% a year, that is a little better than you get at your bank, where you get nothing. But you are committed for 10 years. And so you can have capital damage done to you in 10 years. So, um, so what, what prevents it? I think you eventually get interest rates down so low that it don't, no longer is a meaningful investment. And it's, well, it's approach, approaching Japan, that now. Didn't Japan go down to a zero interest? Uh, yes, they did. That was, yeah, that, that was the interest charged by their central bank. Mm -hmm. And so they were actually loaning money, central bank was loaning money to other banks at zero interest. And Japan went through a, a nightmare, too. The answer to your question is there's absolutely nothing that says this can't go on for another one year, two years, or ten years. I mean, it, it is feasibly possible. It just does not seem practically possible. And I think that the bond crash in 2013 was pretty memorable. And I think that was itself a wake-up call. It's just caused all kinds of people to say this, this really can't go on forever. The biggest bond trader in the country is Bill Gross. He started PIMCO, which ended up with a half trillion dollars of their own of mutual funds. Imagine that. And he got fired because he started publicly stating he thought the government bond market might be high enough. Uh, he actually started the company, and he's a billionaire himself. He's hired by somebody else, and he's changed his tune a little bit. Uh, but there are people like that who just can't see how it can continue. And they're just doing their duty to their bank account by uh, continuing to support the bond market. Mm -hmm. That's great. But, but, well, we should uh, all get rid of our U.S. Treasuries and buy Israeli bonds. That, that'll, uh, that'll there you go. Help. Yeah, Egyptian <laughs> bonds or something. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're not giving too many great choices, are we? <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Chuck, for that insight into these financial matters. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcasts.
And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also at whtt.org, you can watch for free our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.